that because we have this fast paced moving society where news is coming in all the time and especially at the moment it's change all the time and Marcus Aurelius says no just stand apart think about what's important in life you know literally says nine tenths of what you do is probably not important so think about the important things and do those. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Dr. Rhiannon Evans lectures in classics and ancient history at La Trobe University. She's also a co-host of the popular podcast Emperors of Rome, an author of Utopia Antiqua. She is somebody who is a keen scholar of Rome and passionate about communicating the glories and the downsides of Rome to a popular audience. It's a real pleasure to have her today on the Good Life podcast. Rhiannon, thanks for joining us. No problem, Andrew. It's great to be here. So if you were a person who owned slaves, I imagine that no matter how wise you were, my audience would be outraged by the notion that I had invited you onto my podcast. They simply wouldn't be able to see past the fact that I was having a chat with a slaveholder. So... Why are things different when we're looking at a society? Why should I think it's okay to consider what I could learn from a society where about a quarter of the population were slaves? That's a really interesting question. And it's it's one I think that uh, people who work in or study classics ask themselves a lot. It's not the only one. I mean, the, the question has been raised of why do women want to study this society, which by our standards was extremely patriarchal? Um, but I would say slave and free is the very basis of Roman society, and it's not the only society to be a slave society. Uh, but the Romans themselves did not question this. We don't know of anybody who questioned the absolute right to own slaves. Um, it, it, really, uh, it really only comes about um, with Christianity, although not immediately with Christianity. Um, I feel like I'm not answering your question, though. Um, so let me try and get to the heart of it. There are plenty of interesting things to study about Rome. And um, I guess if we only studied societies of which we fully approve, there would be very few that we could study from the past. One of the interesting things that we can see with Rome is because we have so many written texts, so many material sources and more coming to light all of the time, is how they did think about their own society. They thought about their own militarism. They thought about their own political involvement, political engagement, and how that changed over time, how sometimes it did include women, how sometimes freed slaves could have more power than ordinary senators within the imperial household. So there are huge, uh, huge changes, huge um, divergences within Rome itself. And I guess one of the reasons is that we know about Rome over, over a long period of time, over say a thousand years until what we might think of as the fall of Rome in the fifth century. Um, so we can see versions of, and I don't want to stretch this too far, but certainly versions of ourselves and versions of a society that rose to an extreme power with a huge empire and then to a degree dismantled itself or certainly changed over time. 
Yes, I was struck in your episode on slavery, how you talked about the way in which freed slaves were barred from certain things, uh, such as marrying a senator, but then, on the other hand, how slaves themselves at a certain level were able to get very close to, uh, to, to power in a way in which uh, it wasn't possible for, for Roman citizens to do. And the ability to buy yourself out of slavery, I, I find intriguing. Yeah, I, I don't want to have any kind of rose-tinted view of Rome, um, but in terms of slave societies, which were, I would say, of societies we know, the norm in antiquity, um, there was a lot more uh, ability to move around in terms of status. So, you know, there were some slaves who were condemned to the mines who were just going to die there very quickly. There are some slaves who will be freed in their master or mistress's will, who can buy themselves freedom. And when they buy themselves that freedom, they become Roman citizens. And that is very unusual. Now, you've already mentioned that there are limits to their citizenship. Uh, there, there are things they can't do legally. But in the main, they have the rights of a Roman citizen. And that's quite extraordinary, uh, considering the stigma of slavery, which operated in Rome as much as many other places, that they were to an extent, a limited extent, embraced within the, the whole project that was Rome. What got you into stu studying the Roman Empire? Was it uh, a passion that came about in school, university? Where, where did it originate for you? Um, it uh, very nerdily comes from loving to studying languages and even more nerdily and quite surprisingly, given that I'm now on a podcast with you, um, I, I love doing modern languages, but I was too shy to ever speak. So, uh, so I went for a dead language instead. And of course, that wasn't enough. I, I was fascinated by Latin grammar, but then I became fascinated by the Romans, by their literature, by its contradictions and its paradoxes and uh, its kind of amazingness that, that uh, you could be reading. Uh, and perhaps I should have mentioned this with your first question up front, why study a, a society that finds nothing wrong with slavery, is that some of its literature is extraordinary and speaks to us now and, and in a way that we might not expect for a society that seems so alien to us. Um, and so, you know, if you read Virgil, then you, you read about how uh, the power of, of love and service to the state and, and, you know, love between family members can, can kind of floor you, can lead you into doing great things and also mislead you into acting in the wrong way. And it's as kind of sharp and, and amazing to us now as it was at the time. Um, and, and I don't want to talk about great literature being worthy in its own way, but there is a lot of beauty in Roman literature. And that's, you know, when also we think of the Romans going to the arena and enjoying watching people kill other, well, kill animals a lot, not gladiators so much actually, but nevertheless, gladiators could die. Um, it, it's a real clash. And it's, that kind of fascinates me that there's, it's a society that's in some ways so repugnant, but in some ways so amazing in the way it still speaks to us. Uh, it's an amazingly long period we're talking about, too. So uh, my understanding is the Republic gets going about 500 BC, the Empire falls a bit before 300 AD, and then Republic to Empire is about 27 BC or so. Or so. Um, so when, when you're focusing on Rome, are you thinking about that whole period equally, or are, there, are you really zeroing in on, on, some, on a key century or two? Well, it's... It's interesting. Uh, historically, I, I guess, within the uh, discipline of classics, we've concentrated in particular on the first century BCE and the first century CE, 
which is the same, by the way, as BC and AD, um, uh, it stands for before the common era. Um, and that's because we've got loads of written texts from that period or relatively loads, we'd love to have more. So from the very earliest times you're talking about, um, say the form, formation of the Roman Republic seems to have been in the late sixth century BCE, about 510. Um, we don't have much from around then, it's, it's mythical. Uh, we think that most uh, written texts in, in Rome records were burnt in about 390 when the Gauls came down and burnt Rome. So even people who wrote later didn't have a reliable record for that early time, but they had myths that seemed to suggest something about what happened then. So there was a monarchy originally, the Romans then became allergic to kingship and uh, brought in a republic and very firmly against any kind of uh, monarchy at all. And then that fell apart in the late first century BC, which is a time that we have a lot of written texts. Um, and we have the beginnings of ironically a monarchy, which we call an empire under first Augustus, uh, and then uh, his dynasty followed by other dynasties, which goes, I guess many people would say up to about 410 or maybe late fifth century when um, the Roman Empire then has to kind of escape to the east because the northerners have come down again and taken over Italy. In terms of the uh, the way in which, since you just mentioned the, uh, the fall of Rome there, uh, the, the sort of standard story is around imperial overstretch, uh, the idea that they, they try and conquer too much of the world, leave the centre center vulnerable. Uh, is, that, is, is that how we should think about the fall of Rome? Yeah, I get, I mean, a lot of scholars would say that we shouldn't, that I've misled you there, that we shouldn't talk about the fall of Rome because it just moves to Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. Um, and that uh, it continues on until the 15th century in some form. And, and people like Justinian would have thought, did think of themselves as Roman emperors. Uh, and there was always this idea that they would reconquer Italy and reconquer the West. And so um, there, there is, there's still debates about whether Rome has overstretch and you know, they, they have to leave the, the place I'm from, from Britannia in the fourth century because they can't control that far any, uh, away anymore. There's been a lot of change along the way. It doesn't happen suddenly. The, the empire has basically been divided into four even before this time. Um, and it, it does seem like it's not operating both uh, militarily and politically and economically too, in the way that it was meant to. I should add that um, I should have answered your question more clearly in that that later period is not my speciality. So I don't wanna say it's one thing or the other, but I think overstretch is part of it certainly. And, that, and that's why Rome is often compared to modern societies, which you can do in a very glib way. Um, but there might be interesting things to point out about it, that if an empire kind of gets too arrogant, then maybe it'll fall like Rome did. Or the same point is often made about the Republic uh, falling apart in the first century BCE, that uh, the, you know, it wasn't operating to its highest ideals anymore. Therefore, you needed one strong person to come along and take control. And in terms of how Romans lived uh, in the in the period in which you focus on, what do you think of as the being the the main sort of tenets of of living a good life as uh, as, as a uh, a Roman man of high standing would define it? Well, if you're an elite Roman, then one thing I, I know you're perhaps thinking more philosophically, but something that is the very basis of their lives is that they own land, and that is what makes you a good Roman. If you have to actually work from the point of view of the elite, and I will stress that this is most of our texts are written by Roman elites, rich people, from their point of view, working is dirty. 
right? So that's very different to us where we take pride in work. You know, if somebody asks, you meet someone you don't know, and perhaps one of the first things they ask you is what do you do? And what you do is your job usually. Um, that is not the case for uh, rich Romans. They think of themselves as landowners. They sort of think of themselves as farmers, but they do not do that work. Neither the men nor the women. They have not only slaves, but also poorer free people to do that work. Um, and what they do is they, uh, they learn how to speak in an articulate and rhetorical way. And then ideally they go into politics and legal studies, which might well overlap. So being a lawyer, standing up and defending someone in court or prosecuting and being involved in politics and being in the army as a general, you might well do all three of those things. And that is kind of the same job. And it's the job of being a Roman elite. But I do want to just qualify that by saying that we do have other evidence from non, well, they're not non-written texts, but they're not, you know, they're not speeches or novels or poetry uh, they're epitaphs usually, or maybe inscriptions, which show that people who were non-elites were very proud of their work because it's often the thing they commemorate on their funeral stone or somebody else commemorates it for them. We have some very simple ones, clearly written for slaves, which just has their name and their job. You know, it might say Phaedra hairdresser or Zeno cook. Um, so this is obviously not the case for people of what we would think of as lower class or poorer people. Their work's very important to them and it forms a big part of their identity. So we have a, a divide there and the preponderance of our evidence is from these elites who don't get their hands dirty. And, and thinking too, in terms of what we can learn from them, how what's the relationship of, of those elite Romans to, uh, to, to excess? Uh, do, uh, is is that is it something to to be consumed willy nilly, or is there a, uh, a sense that uh, that excessive indulgence can corrupt? There absolutely is that sense, uh, and there seem to be two separate tracks going on at the same time for the Romans. They have this these elite Romans. They have this real kind of ideal uh, that you should live simply that indeed the founders of the Roman Republic in particular had this kind of strong moral code. They didn't need luxury. They often associated luxury with what had been brought in from uh, importing from other areas. So especially the East where there was, you know, there were spices, there were marbles, there, there was a lot of this uh, um, uh, conspicuous consumption that could be made from importing these goods. Uh, and of course, once you've got an empire, it's so, so much easier to import that and do it cheaply. So, uh, and the elites become more elite. Uh, they, they gather up land, they become wealthier, and they ha therefore have more opportunity for importing huge slabs of marble to have you know, hundreds of columns, um, which you might put into a theater conspicuous, conspicuously and then put up in your house. We have an example of somebody doing that. 360 marble columns, I think, which is a lot of excess. So that is going on, which means there were some people who saw status to be gained from doing that, from looking, you know, wearing uh, very beautiful jewelry and clothes and having gold carriages and building really extravagant houses. And there is this whole culture of building villas, especially around the Bay of Naples, which is where the rich go for their holidays. At the same time, we do have, and it's not just philosophers, politicians, others, this whole rhetoric of that being uh, Un-Roman, I guess. They don't use that phrase, but we might use that now in our nation state 
uh, way of talking about things, but this is not the way Romans are meant to act. And this is actually something that's going to bring about the fall of Rome. So they see this, this real moral divide between their simple past and the excess that they exhibit now. And this is something that clearly someone like Augustus is uh, dealing with and responding to. So he's the first emperor who comes to power in 27 BCE. And he is noted for living very simply. I have to say, we probably wouldn't think it was that simple, but relatively simply having a house that's not, uh, you know, doesn't exhibit lots of luxury is relatively simple, still in the poshest bit of Rome on the Palatine Hill. Um, but he does put a lot of money and uh, a lot of clear extravagant building into public works. So he kind of gets it both ways. You know, he, he lives frugally, he doesn't eat extravagant food, but he lays on a Rome that is worthy of an empire. So he gets to have that kind of political um, uh, foregrounding of the, the fact that Rome is this massive empire. Look, we can all be proud of it, but I'm only funding temples and uh, a forum and, you know, all of this lovely marble I'm bringing in. It's not for me personally, it's for you, Rome. Um, and he's he's kind of the gold standard of uh, perfect PR, really. He gets away with that, um, <laughs> whereas later emperors did not. <laughs> so Augustus is the guy in charge when Christ is born. Uh, is there some influence that Christianity begins to have on uh, that sort of more ascetic way of of, of living as as the uh, uh, as the empire goes on? It, it, not till much, much later. Um, and I would say that Christianity and asceticism seems to me more like a medieval concept. Um, but that there is some, there clearly is some overlap. So early on, Christianity is regarded by the Roman emperors as something a bit annoying. They don't really understand it. Why would anyone be interested in monotheism? We've got lots of gods. Why don't you just take them? We're turning some of our emperors into gods. This is unacceptable to both Jews and Christians, of course. Um, and eventually an emperor called Trajan, actually others as well. There are persecutions famously, although nobody we know of, no Christian we know of, was put to death in the Colosseum. So we'll just squash that straight away. Um, but there were persecutions and we've got some letters from the emperor Trajan in the early second century of him saying, well, let them recant, give them three chances. And if they don't recant, execute them. But it's very, I mean, that's it, you know, it's two sentences, he doesn't really care. Um, so that's the kind of background how on how unimportant the Romans think Christianity is. Obviously, it becomes very important in the fourth century when the Emperor Constantine takes on Christianity, he becomes a Christian. And that's the point at which Christianity will start to influence the way the Roman Empire moves. Um, and I guess one of the things that changes at that point is that Christianity has been a magnet, not only, but, but certainly for a lot of marginalized people. So slaves, women, uh, people who don't necessarily have power in traditional Roman structures. And that means that they are, to a certain extent, gradually more recognized, that they, they have more of a part to play. You know, They can become high up in the church or at least have roles within the church. So it will change later on, but not in the uh, the kind of early and mid empire, as we call it. 
Scholars of religion sometimes argue that uh, having uh, beliefs which involve an afterlife can be quite useful to maintaining a power structure because it allows the powerful to say to the powerless, uh, it's okay if you behave well, then uh, you'll get your desserts in the next life. Uh, but I assume that those sorts of beliefs are also in many of the uh, the, the non-Christian religions uh, or the religious beliefs that are around and the, the panthe pantheistic approach that the Romans take. Yeah, I guess it's, it's, it's there, but it's slightly different. We know there was some kind of messianic Im impulse, if we can call it that. Anyway, some idea of a messianic role actually around the time that Christ was born because Virgil, who I was mentioning earlier, he wrote a poem, uh, a series of poems called the Eclogues and the fourth one mentions the birth of a baby. And it's very kind of mystical and this baby is going to bring about, you know, peace. It's, he's almost certainly referring to a baby born to Mark Antony and the, the sister of Augustus, Octavia, who have been married as a kind of alliance to bring um, Augustus and Mark Antony together. It doesn't work. They end up in civil war. Um, so it's probably about Roman power uh, and Roman alliances. But it was read by Christians as being about Christ. Absolutely. The Virgil was this. He was he could foresee things so well that he knew Christ would be born and, and would be the savior of the world. Um, so it suggests that those ideas of a, a savior were around. Um, for the Romans in their traditional religions, there are, there are just so many gods, you know, that they can, we think of the maybe the 12 Olympian gods of Jupiter and Juno and Minerva, etc. But there are gods of, uh, of your courtyard or, you know, gods of um, a, a particular river. Rivers are all gods, they're everywhere. And I guess for them, their uh, consolation is being able to pray to that particular God and expecting something back. It's a very quid pro quo kind of relationship that they have with religion and with their gods. They expect that if they give a sacrifice or some kind of offering, the God will do something back for them. Uh, so it's not so much, I, I don't see a lot of this idea of, of some kind of reward in the afterlife or uh, you know something that will make up for anything bad that's happened to you in your life. However, I, I would say that the fact that, that Virgil is writing about this savior means that there, those thoughts are also around. So it's a complex kind of mix. Uh, nobody has really decided this is the way you will worship. All they've really decided is that monotheism doesn't work. And that is because the emperor needs you to worship him and his forefathers, uh, or at least him when he's dead, because if you can't do that, then you're kind of rejecting Rome. You're re rejecting the divinity of former Roman emperors. So it's it, this is, in a way, it's everything in Rome is indivisible from politics. I don't know, maybe you could always say that about religions wherever they are, but I think it's particularly true at Rome because of the involvement of the emperor um, within religion. You know, you walk into the Roman Forum and there is a temple to the divine Augustus. So, and the Forum is also where the, the political buildings are, where the, the Senate meets. So those two things are drawn together very strongly. Rhiannon, you mentioned before when we were talking about the notion of a good life uh, that uh, high-status Romans would sometimes look back to a simpler period of, of Rome's founding. Uh, to what extent did the, the, the version of utopia that was in the minds of the, those, those people look 
forward rather than back. Uh, and are there periods in which Rome as a society begins to, to, to look, look forward more? Uh, you know, my view of Rome is that there is an awful lot of hand-wringing and, and a, a lot more looking back than forward. Uh, so, for example, they, in, in times of trial, they will often refer back to their myth of Rome's foundation of Romulus and Remus. And, and a standard part of that is that Remus was killed by his brother. So there's kind of foundational fratricide, and they often see themselves as being punished for that if bad things happen later, like civil wars. But that, of course, gives the opportunity for, um, and I'm sorry to keep mentioning Augustus, but he really is very good at this, uh, for people like Augustus, who are very good at messaging, to say, look, I can bring you something that will resolve these, these former crimes, these former tensions. Um, I can bring an end to civil war. Um, if we go, but part of what he does in doing that is says, if we go back to that purity, if we go back to worshipping the gods properly. So that's why he builds a lot of temples. Um, so there is this kind of, I guess, it's almost like a wave of feeling like there is uh, that they've been pulled away from this original simple life and then that they can head back into it. And it's the way Romans talk about themselves as well. Um, so I, I know you, you, you have an interest in Marcus Aurelius and we can talk about him a bit. Um, and people who have seen the film Gladiator might remember them glad that Marcus Aurelius appears in that, although it's mostly mm. about his son Commodus. Um, now, this is Roman history, like, you know, those two emperors did exist in the late second century. And um, Commodus in that is portrayed as somebody who's an evil emperor, who murders his father, who kind of goes against all of his precepts. Um, and that is the way he was talked about in antiquity. And in particular, um, we have one historian, very influential, Edward Gibbon, um, a man called uh, Dio Cassius, who talks about Marcus Aurelius's reign as the age of gold. And then we went from that down to the age of iron. No, even worse, it was the age of rust. So he had a strong concept of things going really well in the second century, of this golden age returning. Uh, that's um, the time when, um, you know, well, I don't know if people do talk about this. Maybe I think they do because I'm a classicist, but it's the time of what we call the five good emperors. And we always put it in scare quotes because of course, what makes a good emperor? Um, but Marcus Aurelius is the last of those. And then Commodus, who is this kind of murderous, uh, possibly unhinged emperor, who wants to be a gladiator himself, despite the low status of gladiators, that it all goes terribly wrong. So I feel like there's always a stage where it goes terribly wrong for the Romans. So however good things get, they can't really look forward to an eternal good way of living. They're always waiting for the, the wrong person to come along and for it to fall apart. I mean, some of that is in retrospect, of course. Uh, but it seems to me that that there's never uh, an entirely utopian sense of the way life can be. It's, it's always contingent and it's, it's always likely to change at any time. Yes, it's uh, a lesson to those of us who are occasionally uh, tempted to talk about uh, uh, the way in which society used to be better, to be reminded that uh, the Romans also referred to the good old days and uh, pined for, uh, for the good old days to return. They did. And at the same time, some people were, uh, we think, quite sceptical about this. So, um, you know, the, there's a poet called Ovid who was exiled by Augustus because he, um, he wrote some 
Well, he wrote some quite uh, fruity poetry, which Augustus is approved of, because part of this getting back to simplicity is being very chaste and kind of uh, sexually contained. Um, but also Ovid seems quite um, cynical about this return to purity. And probably his jokiness about that didn't do him any favors. So, you know, he gets booted off to the Black Sea because he's just not acceptable as a voice under this, this emperor who wants to bring hope and, and say we can get back to this purity. We can we can live this this good life again. But it has to be a good life as you know, as prescribed by me. So there are very strong strictures. And under Augustus, and he's not the only one, books were burnt. Ovid's books were removed from the libraries, but you know this this is not the good life in the way we would think of it because there is very definitely censorship going on. I'm curious in your view about uh, Nero. Uh, there's uh, been some recent scholarship which has suggested that uh, the problem that Nero faced uh, wasn't his bad behaviour so much as the tarnishing of his reputation after his death. And suggestions in particular that some of the stories of the worst of Nero's atrocities bear a surprising resemblance to much older historical stories suggesting that Nero's critics were mining the historical archives to make up tales about him. Uh, to, to, to what extent do you think Nero's reputation has been uh, unfairly traduced? I, I think there's probably a lot, lot, to, lot, lot of truth to that, um, although I shouldn't use the truth word because in the end we don't know. What we can say is exactly what you've said there. It, it looks rhetorically, it looks like there are borrowings, not only from earlier figures, actually from later ones as well, because a lot of our sources are written just after the death of another hated emperor called Domitian. And so his, what was seen as tyranny, uh, is maybe reflected in the way Nero's written about. Um, so this is one of our problems. A lot of our sources are a fair bit later to when the figure themselves are being written about. It's also been said that Nero may have been misunderstood in many ways. So, you know, I mentioned before that Augustus built lavishly for the public. Nero famously built basically a country villa in the heart of Rome, and Rome is not that big. It took up three of Rome's hills, um, and it wasn't finished when he died. It was called the Golden House. It's you know, when we can travel again. Bits of it are reopened and you can go visit. Um, and it has, you know, it has this amazing domed dining room, which apparently had the constellations on the ceiling and they actually turned, we don't quite know how, so to reflect the, you know, the, the changing of where you would see the stars in the sky. Um, mm. And, it, but some people think that the gardens of this villa were not intended as his private space, that he was going to open that up to the public. Um, and, you know, there may be something to that, but he never had the chance to do it because he was, uh, well, he, he killed himself, but he was kind of forced into it. Um, and that means that uh, after a short civil war, the, the history of what happened under Nero was written by a new dynasty who had really not a lot of, uh, not a lot of love for Nero and uh, no reason to um, to record anything good about him. And they they built all over the Golden House. They destroyed it and built you know public works. Uh, the Colosseum indeed is built on Nero's Golden House. Uh, the foundations of it. So um, so that is a, a problem. And it's true that uh, Nero probably has been maligned. Um, uh, one of the things he did, and some of those who are styled as bad emperors, is that he got rid of senators. So, um, 
the people who write these histories are from the senatorial class, the very highest class political and uh, in terms of wealth, the highest class in Roman society. And once you start killing off senators, then your reputation is going to be trashed. There's no doubt about that. So that is one of the reasons that Nero gets such a bad press. Why do so many emperors die? Uh, what, what is what, what prevents them from coming to arrangements in which uh, uh, the person who is being uh, sub- taken over from is able to be eased out of office? Uh, they they just seem to kill leaders with this remarkable regularity. Yeah, uh, I, I suspect your question is why do so many of them die violently? And it, it is true; it's a really Indeed. dangerous job. Um, yeah, it's uh, and it comes to a head in the third century where you have, I think, 50 emperors in 50 years. Um, it, it's really crazy. I, I cannot recount the emperors from that period because there's just too many. Um, well, I guess that one of the things is that it becomes a job for life, which uh, certainly if the, anyone who remembers the Republic has not been used to. The Republic uh, was was really founded in the idea that there would be a turnover. So the consuls are only they have a lot of power. But there are two of them and they can veto each other and they're consuls for a year. And after that, they can be prosecuted for anything that someone feels they've done wrong or exploitatively. Whereas the emperors have um, they have all of the power of a consul um, and some other magistracies too, all added together. And there is no way of constraining that. And so the only way to get rid of an emperor is by murdering them. And that is one of the reasons it happens. If the right people who have access to the emperor become dissatisfied, feel threatened, feel that this person is out of control, then that is their remedy to do that. There's no retirement plan for an emperor. Uh, and uh, and I'm curious, you know, just since you mentioned there the, uh, the, the Republic, uh, the way in which the Republic exerts such a hold on the founders of the American Constitution, um, the, uh, the, the structure, structure of the Senate, the, ter- the term limits, um, what is it about the founding of America that means that these, the, the Roman stories uh, shape the, the, this Constitution that then goes on to shape so many other constitutions? Oh, my goodness, what isn't there about the Roman Republic that they don't seem to love? I think part of it is that they see themselves, and I know there are are, are founders of the American um, state that quoted this at the time, Um, they see themselves as farmers and soldiers too, and the Romans did, very few of them were, but even by the late Republic, but that's kind of their ideal, and maybe I should mention that. This, you know, this whole idea from the elites that work is, is dirty, but at the same time, their ideal kind of simple life was that you would go out to the fields and work it, and then when needed, you would go off to the army and defeat the enemy and then go back to the fields and the simple life. So that's one of the ways that... Um, the early uh, founders of, of the United States kind of saw themselves, they saw themselves reflected in that. I guess also implicit in this is the knowledge that Rome did become extremely powerful in ancient terms. So, you know, having an empire from northern Britain that stretched all the way to Egypt and, and even to even nearly as far as India at times, um, that means that there's, there's a kind of ambition, uh, a sort of um, an upward mobility that they might see in themselves in this new foundation. Um, and also the fact that we we have um, Roman literature, Latin literature, 
being taught as the basis of, in particular, boys' education at this time means that that is the message that they are getting. And it's kind of self-fulfilling. If you keep teaching Latin, you keep reading Caesar and Virgil, and etc., then these are the ideals that you see yourself being set up against. And therefore, you maintain Rome as this great society. Um, and, and, you know, so, for example, Cincinnati is named after a Roman hero general called Cincinnatus, whose name is an honorific name, which doesn't seem very honorific. It means delayer. But he tactically delayed until he thought it was the right time to attack the enemy. Uh, and he was right. And he won for Rome. And he's one of those people that went back and, you know, straight into the fields, got behind the plow, gave up power. They love this idea of giving up power and going back to the simple life. I think that might be at the heart of it, of not being, a, you know, you know, the way um, some Americans talk, of, well, especially at the moment, but politicians being bad. I feel strange saying this to you. Um, but I guess from Rome, they get that idea that being a politician isn't, it's not for your whole life. There's also this whole other life that you participate in for the good of the state. And that politics is just a small part of that that you do temporarily. And then you go back to the, the real work. Yeah, you think about that Hamilton song, uh, Teach Them How to Say Goodbye, uh, which George Washington sings as he steps down after two terms. Yes, indeed. And, and I'm, I'm not an expert on the uh, American Constitution, but those term limits do seem to be very important, although I gather that it's a little more recent than we think of. Um, it, it's not there right at the beginning, is it, the two terms for president, I believe? No, indeed. It's a norm which FDR then goes and breaks big time. Yeah. So, um, so I guess that, that, that's a huge part of it. I, I do think, though, it's the Romans view of what they should be. It's certainly not what the Romans mostly thought that they were. So that's kind of ironic. It's just this ideal that they put up for themselves and then in many cases fail to live up to. And yet the Americans kind of took this and ran with it, even though I think if they had read a lot of the texts we have in good faith, they'd see that this is, this is something that's almost impossible to maintain. It's, it's not an ideal that, that became a reality. So among the uh, sexist, racist slaveholders who, uh, who ran Rome, um, Marcus Aurelius, as you mentioned before, is my favourite. Um, how did this uh, intellectual stoic end up uh, in the top job? Well, uh, he's, he's one of a period, I said that they were called the good emperors, the five emperors. They're also sometimes called the adoptive emperors. Uh, because uh, ironically, none of the people who are perceived as good emperors ever seem to be the actual son of a previous emperor. Even though we have this dynastic idea. You're telling me heredity doesn't always guarantee meritocracy? <laughs> well, fortunately, I, fortunately might not be the right word, but from the Roman point of view, adoption is as good as, as having your own child, or pretty much as good. They, adoption is very common. Um, and so they, they don't really think badly of an adopted child. Oh, well, I, I may be phrasing that very badly, but we might assume that your biological child is what you want to, to succeed you. That's not necessarily the Roman view. But when Marcus, you know, Marcus Aurelius is the father of Commodus and Commodus goes horribly wrong, whereas Marcus Aurelius had been adopted by a guy called Antoninus Pius and his his second name means pious. It means he's dutiful and good. So he definitely was perceived as a good emperor. And they, he had in turn had been adopted by Hadrian, which had sort of come out of a, a strain, if you like, of emperors from the provinces. Both Hadrian and his predecessor were from Spain. So they're sort of bringing in 
army commanders from all around the empire. They're no longer relying on you being a member of this particular dynastic family, because the previous adoptions had usually been of, you know, stepsons or nephews or whatever. And this time they do seem to be genuinely looking at merit, at least in terms of being a, a good military strategist. And Marcus Aurelius is a general first and foremost. And this is the, one of the reasons he comes to prominence and is named as Antoninus Pius's successor. Um, and he's fortunate to come about at a time when the empire seems to have been fairly stable, I guess you could say. There's, there's not a lot, you know, Rome is pretty much always in conflict, but not so much in the mid second century, although there's trouble brewing to the north in Germania, trouble for the, the Romans, which some have argued Marcus Aurelius ignores too long. And, and that's why he spends his latter years um, at war uh, out there in the field. So he writes this amazing book called Meditations um, in gr Greek rather than Latin, as I, as I understand it. Uh, what is it about that that, uh, that has such an influence? It's really interesting. Um, he does write it in Greek. That is seen as the language of philosophy. But, it, you know, Cicero wrote his in Latin. You can write them in Latin. Some people think the vocab isn't there. Um, it's called, it's actually called in Greek to himself. He doesn't call it meditations or anything quite like that. Um, and so they're basically notes to himself about how we think, about how he can live a good life as a Stoic. Stoicism seems to have been the philosophy that particularly influences him. Um, and he, he's thinking about, you know, how can I both be emperor and live this principled life? I have to say a lot of stress has been laid on the meditations as a work that tells us a lot about Stoicism or Roman emperors, but the fact that no one else, as far as we know, was meant to see this. So this is like his sort of, it's almost like a journal, but thoughts about how I can improve, maybe self-improvement. And the fact that it's note-like, it's not, it's not giving a concrete argument about how to be a good person. It's not a book you'd go and buy uh, if you were looking for self-help, because it's really written for him. It's all about him and how he can improve. But because it's written in this note form, it does also kind of lend itself to being quoted, the short quotes. Um, and that's where you'll see, you know, you'll see whole books of these quotes or him quoted in dictionaries of quotations. Um, it would be brilliant if he were alive today, be a tweet a day, I'm sure. Oh no, he's the most the most tweetable of the emperors, surely. Absolutely, and I just just before we met, I looked I looked up uh, there's a website called Daily Stoic, um, mm. which has a whole lot of Marcus Aurelius quotes, um, and you know because they are things like those who bury will soon be buried. Um, Think of yourself as dead. You have lived your life. Now take what's left and live it properly. Um, I guess it's it's already compressed into something simple to read but it might not tell you necessarily the whole story of Stoicism. Yes, and, and I guess to our comment before about the high uh, risk of being murdered as, ne as an emperor, um, death seems to be very present in how Marcus Aurelius thinks about the world and the importance of recognising that you only get a short amount of time on the planet and therefore have an obligation to use it as well as possible because very soon you'll be gone. Yeah, and, and I guess that still speaks to us, those, those kind of ideas. How, and there is a lot about death and how do you deal with death without giving way to grief, 
which is something that um, we might associate with stoicism still, that we, we use that word stoic to mean to sort of, you know, bear up and not show emotion. It, it, that's certainly not all of what stoicism was about at all, um, but that is an aspect of it which, which, the, which did attract the Romans, I think. Stoicism, which is a Greek philosophy in origin, is, uh, and there's a whole load of them. I mean, the Romans could pick and choose. There's a lot of different philosophies out there. Stoicism is the one that seems to have appealed to more Roman elites than anything else. And I think that's because of what we were talking about before, this idea that the, the correct way to live is to be, it won't, for one thing is to give service to the state um, and to not let your own emotions interfere with that. And if I can just, I think this is relevant, just give you an example from far back in Roman myth. Um, the founder of the Republic was a man called Brutus. He's not the same Brutus who was involved in the murder of Julius Caesar, although that Brutus did claim that he was descended from this original Brutus. And Brutus was one of the first consuls in the first year of the Roman Republic. He was one of the consuls um, and the kings had escaped. Brutus's sons went and joined the king's side and declared war on Rome. And he had to preside over their execution for this treason. And he did it even. So he had to he had to kind of subsume his own personal relationships and his emotions below service to the state. And the Romans loved Brutus. They loved this idea that you would give up, you know, your own internal needs, your wants, your, your love for your children, even to the state itself. And I think even all those centuries later, this is what Marcus Aurelius is still tussling with. You know, how do you, how do I act as a principled person when I've got this huge amount of responsibility? When, when am I, you know, how, how do I make sure that I'm not um, living to this excess that we worry about? I, I'm not uh, giving in to all of this power that I have. Um, so a lot of his, a lot of the quotes we get from Marcus Aurelius are also about acceptance, about being able to accept people's flaws, about not giving way to anger. He's really, really concerned with that. Um, and of course, that when you've gotten a lot of power, if you give way to anger, you can just order anything to happen. You can order people to be executed. You can order that uh, a state be um, that, you know, the army goes off and invades a place. And if you do it in anger, there's this very strong idea that that is not the correct way to act. So there's a lot in Marcus Aurelius about maintaining calm. And I think that's something that definitely appeals to us at the moment, that the idea that we want we want to we kind of relate really well to these these quotes and these precepts that tell us to just accept, to kind of wait a minute, almost to count to 10 before we make decisions, uh, because we have this fast paced moving society where news is coming in all the time and especially at the moment it's change all the time. And Marcus Aurelius says, no, just stand apart. Think about what's important in life. You know, literally says nine tenths of what you do is probably not important. So think about the important things and do those. And prioritizing is so desperately hard. Uh, it's interesting as you were telling the story of uh, the earlier Brutus uh, and the, the willingness to stand judgment over your children. I, I was reminded of uh, the the story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in the Bible, uh, which is similarly held up as as a as a marker of of someone's ability to put aside family loyalty for a higher calling. But it's a story that's always sent 
the same chill down my spine that I felt when you were telling the story about Brutus in that I'm not sure I can fundamentally trust someone who is willing to sacrifice their own child for, for any cause. There's something, there's something almost natural about wanting to, to fight for your children uh, even in any context. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I remember being told that that story as a very young school child, um, and I hadn't actually related the two together, so that's really interesting. But I remember thinking, but the, God is awful here. And that's not the point of the story at all, of course. But it didn't, I didn't relate to it. Um, and so I guess that tells us that the Romans were very different, or certainly that there were um, and again, I think we have to say it's certain educated elite Romans who saw that as an ideal. Um, and some people have sort of drawn from this that the Romans didn't love their children. And I think there are plenty, there's plenty of evidence that that is not the case. Um, for one thing, a very famous Roman, Cicero, um, was he only had one child, a daughter. Um, and as in many patriarchal societies, daughters were not as important. But when she died, his grief was just uncontainable, um, even though he wasn't actually a Stoic, but he certainly uh, approved of a lot of Stoic ideals. But he was not able to. I mean, he wanted to deify her. He built shrines to her. He wanted statues of her up. He just could not be consoled. Um, so the, there's certainly a lot of evidence that the Romans had very strong, um, very strong um, markers of what we would say as family love. Um, and yet, and yet they can admire this figure that was able to subsume that love. So, Rhiannon, I want to draw the conversation to a close by taking you back to the, uh, the, the question that I opened with. Uh, I assume that to be a good historical scholar, you need to be able to see the world through Roman eyes. But at the same time, as a, a, a modern person with all of the progressive uh, sympathies that we have, uh, you don't want to be a, a sort of moral relativist and, and see uh, this sexist, racist, slaveholding society as being in some ways acceptable. Uh, how do you strike that balance and, and how does that shape you as a person and how you go about other, other aspects of your life? It's a, it's a difficult but really important question, I think. Um, for one thing, I would say that I've said that the Romans are patriarchal and, and they are, but they actually give a re relatively a, quite a lot of power potentially to women. Women can own, for one thing, they can own slaves. Um, and they, you know, they, they can spend money, they can own businesses. Uh, there are statues to women who, who own businesses and, and patronized, you know, gave benefactions. So there is some status for women. And I, I think that's interesting. I guess, I guess at the heart of it is my interest in how a society can develop and operate. And you're right, I do need to try and think myself into the mind of often, uh, you know, a dead white male, basically. Um, and, and particularly one of the figures I study most at the moment is Julius Caesar. And, and I would not like to meet him because I think he was probably a despicable person by our standards. I mean, he killed uh, or was responsible for the deaths of uh, maybe a million Gauls, which is just, you know, hard to think about. Um, but I do think that we can learn a lot from the way that they themselves 
uh, kind of manipulated through rhetoric, that they developed these rhetorical ways of thinking about the world and thinking about other people, thinking about their political structures. One of the things it tells us is to read between the lines, to learn how to do that. And it's not only by studying the Romans that we can learn this. But, uh, but theirs is a very particular society that's, that's concerned with appearance versus reality a lot. And I think that's at the heart of what we've been talking about, that they, they have this ideal of how their society should work, but they so often have to face the reality of how it doesn't. Rhiannon, let me uh, close by asking you a few questions uh, that I, I put to all of my interviewees. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? <laughs> Ah, yeah, very, very difficult. Um, Well, not to be so shy, (laughs) to speak up more in class, the advice I give to my current students, Um, to learn more languages. I don't know if this is the kind of answer you want. Um, But you're already a language tragic. You you feel as though you should have diversified even further? A lot more, a lot more languages. What's a language you wish you knew? I wish I knew Welsh. You can tell from my name that I'm my background is Welsh. The last person to speak Welsh in my family is my grandfather. Um, and, you know, I could have learned Welsh from him, but I grew up at a time when, unlike now, it's completely different now, but in Wales, English was the language and you just Welsh was meant to be buried. It was a thing of the past. So I, I think one thing that gave me, though, is a very strong idea of um, not accepting that something is marginalized and should stay that way and trying to think about um, those who've been trodden on in the process of, of whether it be an empire or, or those in power kind of staking their claim to the way they think things should be done. Um, so some would say it's given me a chip on my shoulder. And of course, I haven't done anything about it. I haven't gone and learned Welsh yet. Um, but it is my retirement plan. <laughs> <laughs> What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, in the context of what we've been discussing today, the easy answer would be that um, you know I was sent to a church school and I don't have that belief anymore. Um, Did that come about from studying uh, Rome? No, it didn't. Was... No, absolutely not. I think it, I don't know why. Um, It's just something that I gradually lost. I don't have a good answer to that, to why that is. That's really interesting. I haven't thought about that in a long time, but it was when I was, it was before I started learning Latin and uh, before I was a teenager, even I started losing my religion. Um, I used to think that you should keep quiet and and just, and this is maybe why I was so quiet at school, um, and just let those in charge tell you what to do. And I don't think that anymore. I think you need to raise your voice to it, you know, and, and maybe within, within limits, you choose your battles, but that you shouldn't just accept the way things are. In terms of the gender aspect of that, which is, uh, I guess, one dimension, uh, is is your discipline quite male dominated, and and how's uh, how's has that sh- uh, how's the scholarship shifted as the gender mix of people studying Rome has shifted? Oh my goodness! When I was an undergrad, I had there were nine wonderful lecturers. We had a class department with nine people, which seems amazing now. They were all men. Um, and there was one woman in the department and she was the secretary and we called them secretaries back then. 
And when I went to do my PhD, my supervisor was a woman uh, who was half, you know, part classes, part in gender studies. And it changed everything that I did and the way I thought about everything. Um, and that's because I was a bit behind the times. But in the 1980s, there was a big shift in classics and uh, women decided that they wouldn't just do what they were told anymore. Uh, and there's a whole strain of, of gender studies in classics and women's studies that came from that period. Um, and now, I guess, in line with the humanities in general, you know, they're more likely to be women studying it than men. So, but it's much more balanced these days. Um, nevertheless, uh, and this is true of academia as a, as a whole, uh, I think that the those of professorial status are still more likely to be men. But I don't think that's special to classics. I think that that is across the board in academia. Are there non-obvious ways in which uh, more women in classics has changed the scholarship? Uh, it has changed the scholarship a lot. For one thing, it's it means that I could tell you about those slaves who uh, wrote their tombstones that mentioned their jobs because the research into that was done by a couple of really important women. I think that it brought in a group of people and this is still getting more diverse because uh, classics is historically white dominated. Um, but it brought in a group of people who said, well, we've just been told that we can't know about these people because there's no evidence, but we're gonna go look for the evidence. So that's what changed, I think. People started broadening out the way that they studied classics and the, what they looked for. And the same happens with texts in a, in a very quite complex way, I suppose, um, that pretty much all of the literary texts we have from ancient Rome were written by men, but that doesn't mean that you can't look at them from the perspective of feminism or you know other kinds of frameworks to look at how women are portrayed in this text, um, how there's, there might be some kind of dynamic of domination going on in this text. So there are all kinds of different ways now of looking at these texts. And it's not just because women have come more into the discipline, but that has certainly helped to change it, but it still needs to change more. I mean, one of the problems with classics is that it can easily be co-opted um, into kinds of ideologies that, that I find quite scary. Um, so stoicism that we were talking about there um, is I think held up by some far right groups as, as a good way of living because it demands this kind of, that you give yourself up to the cause. Um, probably not just far right groups and also that you have this kind of hardening of the self. So there are ways in which these texts can be taken and uh, I think misapplied and misused um, in, in our modern context. And that's why I think it's really important for us to study the ancient context and to say, well, this is what it meant to the Romans. It doesn't have to mean this to us. This is a very different society. This is the way it operated there. Um, but you know, do we really wanna follow the Romans down that path? Uh, we're gonna do something different. It doesn't mean these texts aren't interesting to us, but no one or most people would not want to hold up uh, a slave owning society uh, as the ideal way to go. And that, you know, I guess part of the reason I want to study Rome is to look at those ways that it's incompatible with uh, our society and our ideals. I think that is as important as looking to them for any kind of inspiration. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Well, I'm not sure it's related to classics. Um, <laughs> Doesn't have to be. 
it's probably exercise, um, which the Romans would have approved of. Um, so yoga, I think, um, and uh, learning when to stop doing classics or interacting with students at the end of the day and go and do that for half an hour. So in a way, one of the most important things I do for myself is, is knowing when to not do classics. Um, but on the other hand, I, I will say that I, you know, in the turmoils of a, an, an academic career, uh, quite a few years ago, I had the opportunity to step away and do have a different role. And um, I could not do it. I could not do it. I needed to keep reading uh, Latin literature and finding out more about the Romans. Uh, and I looked at, um, um, uh, your listeners won't be able to see this, but if I turned my video back on. Behind me, I have my Oxford Latin Dictionary, which I bought myself when I finished my PhD. I looked at that and thought, no, I'm not. It's, I'm still too attached to it. I still need to know more about this culture. <laughs> Finally, uh, Rhiannon, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? It's very hard to fix it down to one person, isn't it? Um, I think that my undergraduate tutor, a man called Donald Hill, who probably would disagree with most of the ways that I do classics now, but was very, very kind to me. Um, and was always there to listen to me. And he, I think one of the things I, I liked about him most was that even though he would not necessarily have thought that uh, adopting different frameworks for doing classics would be his way of doing it. He was very accepting of me doing that and going off to, you know, going off to California to do my PhD. Um, and I think, he taught me to, I hope that I, I can live this out, to be kind to my students is the most important thing. Because, you know, we're there, we're there to teach them, to help them to grow, to help them to develop their own ways of thinking. But if you can't be kind to them in the first place, then I don't think any of that is going to happen. And I don't think I always manage it. I'm sure I fail all the time. But I think about... I think about the time I went to see him just after my final exams and I said, oh, everything's falling apart. I'm sure I didn't do very well. And he just sat and said to me, It'll, it's fine, Rihanna, don't worry. I've, I've looked at your exam papers, it's fine. And that was, you know, he didn't have to do that. And it was just, just that kindness. I keep coming back to that word. It seemed very inappropriate after what we've been talking about today, but I, that is something that continues to influence me and in my daily life and my teaching. Rhiannon Evans, thanks for being our Virgil to the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire today. It's been lovely to talk to you, Andrew. Thank you. And you, you really made me think about some things that I hadn't before. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Martha Nussbaum and Massimo Piliucci. This is our 150th episode so we're asking listeners to fill in a three-minute survey to help us improve the podcast. You can find the link in the show notes. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.